Welcome to Moja Sessions, the podcast powered by Amazingly Africa for Africans and descendants of Black Africa around the globe. In these roundtable discussions, we will be talking numbers, facts, data, and solutions. My name is Linda Fwiting, and I am your host. The continent of Africa owes a debt of about $583 billion as of 2018, and according to the World Bank data, which is a jump of about 150% when compared to its debt of $236 billion 10 years ago. So what is a debt? A debt is an obligation that requires one country, the debtor, to pay money or other agreed upon value to another party, the creditor. And in regards to the continent, Angola holds about 30%, which is $43.15 billion of the total debt owed to China and Africa. This oil-rich nation sells about two-thirds of its crude oil to China, but with lower oil prices today due to the pandemic, the country will be forced to pump more to repay its loans. But the country's official external debt stood at about $58 billion last year, and it's expected to jump to about $85 billion this year, according to the IMF. Now, other top countries that owe a lot of money to China include Ethiopia with $13.8 billion, Kenya at $8.9 billion, Zambia at $8.6 billion, and Sudan at $6.5 billion. And this was all extended between the year 2000 and 2017. Now, my question is, what does it mean to actually get a loan in this 21st century? And what does it mean to have those large multinationals in our countries in Africa? Joining me today is Biko Ayumagaba, who is a revolutionary Pan-Africanist who is currently studying economics at Brown University. Boyd Chokomolefi, who is a policy analyst and is currently working on bridging knowledge gaps between communities and practitioners to create equitable policies. And Chance Kinyangi-Boas, who is an Afropolitan and holds a bachelor's degree in business administration and is an accountant from Brown University. Biko, you have a little bit of experience and a lot of research on foreign aid and debt. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I, I think is very important to mention, in terms of like multinational cooperation coming in in the African continent, it's sort of like simultaneous justification for why money is given to African co- continent. Because what happened like was Africa was on the lower stage of development. So what they say is for it to develop, there has to be, uh, they have to focus, first of all, like on producing raw materials because European nations and America have like machines, then they can be processed in those nations. And the flow of multinational corporations coming to Africa come like sort of like in the, in the, in the idea of developing the African continent because the idea is like the more capital we, we pump into the economy, the more the economy grows. So like if there is a lot of like foreign direct investment that coming into the African continent, then that means it's going to uproot the job opportunities and create a lot of production uh, that might provide opportunities. It turns out, unfortunately, that's not how it works because 
if you look at the rep- report that came out like very recently by uh, chaired by Tabon Becky uh, about what happened, it, it says that for the past 50 years, about one trillion came in in terms of capital. That is direct foreign investment by multinational corporation. The same amount of money, or probably more, actually about 1.8 trillion went up. So what that means is like the type of relationship we have with the, this multinational corporation is not working. And the problem is there is a, a double taxation system that allows this multinational corporation to repatriate so much profit. But also there is another question of like uh, elites, African elites. You were talking about Angola who embezzle a huge amount of money. So it's been found that about 500 billion goes outside the African continent through the illicit financial flows. So uh, the partnership between multinational corporation and these African elites who are involved into government has created this type of uh, uh, phenomena by which it's almost very hard for the African continent to benefit from the foreign aid that comes inside the, the, the continent. Thanks a lot for that commentary, Biko. Bo, do you have anything to add to that? Yes. Thank you guys for, for joining us on this podcast. Uh, one of the things that is important to highlight is that the conversation around investment is never regarding ownership, right? It, it, it never is about ownership and about retention. We talk about foreign direct investment, but we don't talk about kind of localized retention of skills, of profits um, within the context that is being invested in and the large issue with with a lot of these places in the african context is capital leaves as biko alludes to that capital is leaving um, more than capital is being added and so when you do not create capacity that owns production what you eventually create is a system that perpetually suppresses potential in an area and therefore the default becomes aid because then aid is what's filling the budget gaps and in terms of making sure the budget works, but you actually need a sustainable source of income that will fill that budgetary hole. And that's why you see this kind of doubling of the aid burden, right, on African context, because now people are trying to fill their budgets with aid money because they don't have infrastructure institutionally that prohibits the repatriation of capital um, legally, which is what happens. Um, most countries don't own natural resource rights. So uh, natural resources are privatized or the mining and extraction process is privatized. And so the only income countries get is through taxation. And that is a painful price for Africans to pay who again, originally look at land from a custodial perspective and not an ownership perspective. And so the concept of even owning um, rights individually when the resource is communal is, is, is very oxymoronic in how the beneficiation process ought to work on the African context. And I think that fundamentally what we are seeing is that the use of foreign aid to fund and deliver services and goods to people ultimately becomes a self-hurt cycle that doesn't allow for actual capacitation um, and resource accumulation within local context. I think it's interesting that you bring up these points because 
Many now worry that this debt is becoming quite unsustainable for African countries. The average public debt increased from 2010 to 2018 by 40% to 59% of GDP, and that's according to the World Bank. Now, due to this pandemic, as of March 26th, African nations called for a 100 billion rescue package, which includes a 44 billion US dollars debt write-off from the group of the 20 largest economies, which includes China. And if we want to go into detail, Angola, Zambia, Sudan, and the Republic of Congo Brazzaville are among those seeking that relief. And they're arguing that they need to relocate funds to healthcare and equipping hospitals to fight the coronavirus, which has infected over 3.5 million people worldwide as of today. So now, what happens when you sign a bad deal for these debts, for example, in Zambia or in Sri Lanka? Chance, do you want to tell us a little bit about that, please? Yeah, yeah. Thanks again for having me, uh, uh, Chance Boss. Uh, Linda, thank you so much uh, for this uh for this opportunity, I think that th- this is a very, very difficult time for the for the African continent when it comes to uh, uh, this new crisis of dealing with dates. And uh, I think this is going to be a, a new trend that is going to continue, and it has a really uh, negative uh, impact in our motherland, the country that the continent that we love. And uh, I think that in country, so few points. I believe that I think it was 2008-2007, the Chinese government did invite all African country head of states to a meeting in China and Ji uh, Chao said that the, the loan that the China government is providing to this African government has no string attached. Now, Keep in mind that what does what does that mean a loan that has no string attached? So for, for an African government is that they're able to borrow money with zero uh, transparency, you know, and this uh, alleviate the level of uh, social accountability. Like you can't really, we, the people of a country, for example, in Zambia just mentioned is that the government was able to borrow a certain amount of money uh, so that they, 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 they can build uh, a stadium over there in, in Zambia. But what happened is when the government failed to meet its obligation, it might default on the loan. And what happened is what, what the Chinese government comes in and do is that they will not allow uh, the fellow of the loan payment or the forgiveness of the loan. Instead, the, what they would do is they will ask for collateral or uh, or have the state transfer certain asset to the Chinese loan, either government um, uh, corporation or in some cases, like in Djibouti, the Chinese is government itself owns the port. You know, and I. I'd like to be clear. When you say assets, what do you mean? Do you mean uh, natural resources for these specific countries? In Zambia, actually, the current issue that is happening is that the U, the China, China government is saying that they're asking for the uh, uh, company called Mopani, which is the largest mine in Zambia, to be uh, 
according to the Wall Street Journal, they were saying that the Chinese government was in negotiation with the Zambia uh, government to take over the, uh, the Maponi, which is the third largest mine in Zambia, as a collateral to the loan instead of uh, providing them a loan forgiveness. One of the things that happened in Zambia is the state media is owned now by the Chinese government. As a, so that's a state asset, the level of communication. It's not run by the, the Zambia government, but now it's in, in hands of the Chinese government. So this is, the, this is why this is a very interesting question. We do need the Chinese government to provide us loan. We do need the IMF to provide a loan, but we want this loan to be transparent. But we do need to see the railroad being built from Ethiopia to Zambia, you know, that's a very good achievement. But we want to make sure, you know, this this construction is done by African people. We want to make sure there's no child labor. You know, we want to make sure there is no environmental violation. You know, we want to, to be able to negotiate these deals so that it benefits us now, so that 10 years later, when this government that wasn't transparent in telling us what the term of the loan is, we're not in debt to a point where we have to to lose our natural resources just because we did take a loan from a fallen entity that previously said there was no string attached. I think it's quite interesting, this topic of China in Africa, because 20 years ago, we didn't even know that, who would have thought that China was interested in Africa? But today we see that Beijing has poured billions of dollars into the continent over the past decade as part of its Belt and Road Initiative, like you mentioned, Chan. They built roadway, motorways, ports, dams, railways, and it was all part of their effort to expand its trading links, but also its influence around the globe. Do one of you have a commentary about that? Yeah. So one of the things we need to interrogate, like, very seriously, uh, Chase brought up a very good point, which is we need this aid. And that is not because we can't survive without it. It's because we've been put into a situation where our survival categorically depends on borrowing that from these nations. If you know very well, you would know that most of our countries are pegged to the United States of America dollars. And like even West Africa, for instance, you have a situation where about 14 countries are pegged to the euro as a system of currency. And, and one of the reasons that's why this is the case, and we see this beginning in 1945 when this, the, the social order right now that we have, which is the Western order, that is crumbling right now as, as we speak, and we're seeing the rise of China, is that there is a, that dynamic of change in terms of uh, trust, in terms of uh, who gets to be trusted by many different countries so that they renegotiate the deals. And China took the same kind of uh, approach that the United States of America was doing, which is to pump a huge amount of credit within these economies. Now, I want to stress that this amount of money that we're being given actually is not existing money. If you look at how much money that exists within the global economy uh, in relation to the production that's out there and properties, it's about $5 trillion. And now the entire global economy right now, plus the credit, is about $80 trillion. That means $75 trillion is not money that is backed by anything like gold. It's just credit. And credit is predicated on the idea that people trust in the future. 
Now, China is beginning to be trusted by many different countries and economies, and that's why they're doing uh, this uh, same strategy. But the problem becomes, at what point, how, how far are we going to survive in this kind of uh, situation? Because I don't think it's working for the African continent. Like Chase pointed out brilliantly, is most of the properties are being taken out from the African continent. So China is owning most of the resources now that the Western countries owned uh, prior to that, or probably like the two of them are like fighting from there. So that poses a very serious question of like, if the United States of America moves out, which which hasn't happened, China comes in, where are we going? So is it from uh, one system of slavery to another system of slavery? Or something has to be something has to be done and has to be done in a hurry. That's a pretty good alliteration, a pretty good comparison, Vico. And Bo, do you want to respond to that really quickly? Yes, I'd want to respond to that. And I think that the question on China's investment in Africa, for me, is less about trust, but more about convenience. I think that the history of oppression, particularly, and and the double dealing um, that, you know, is well documented on how the United States and other Western powers have played both sides of conflict or played, you know, both sides of opposing interests on the African continent, you know, for their beneficiation, has created uh, a space where when dealing with China almost, it's, you know, what you get is what you see. So they tell you the terms and conditions of that money. You know who they're dealing with. So it's transparent in the sense that you know the obligations you are committing to when dealing with China. But however, that's more pervasive because of that transparency between the two parties making the deal. When the deal isn't fulfilled, the people who pay for the deal are, you know, your, your, your citizens back home, right? When you now have this land being taken away or these resources being taken away, it's because it, it's, an, it's, it's an open agreement. The money, you know, the, the instances where the IMF has written out loans to countries as far back as the 2000s and the loans are only now being put forth almost two decades later, Right. And with China, you get your credit today, you're activated tomorrow, almost. You know, that sounds hyperbolic, but like in terms of like relative distance between getting approved and getting your financial support, it's within a short, reasonable period of time. And I think that, you know, for whatever reasons African countries want to engage with in terms of whether it's corruption or whatever, they get access to that funding almost immediately. And more importantly, the terms of negotiation with, with, with Chinese government are slightly more flexible than they are with the IMF or the World Bank or even other, other European lenders, right? As to where when you're getting IMF money, you have to have a guarantor for that project who has liquid cash that is about you know 10 to 15% of that project value. And we know for a fact that very few African companies can afford such a commitment. And so that that becomes inherently problematic when you're trying to localize resources within the context, right? You know, countries like Botswana have been able to negotiate some of their contracts to where um, about 30% of the financial inputs remain localized with local contractors in order to find a way of creating some type of trickle-down beneficiation for their population. It's not a perfect system. They can do better, 
but that there is a step in that direction of trying to aggressively negotiate for those loans and make them more transparent. So I think that with the Chinese emerging, because they have such a robust economy that is also backed by their population, they are able to create a very convenient um, mechanism of accessing resources that you know the West cannot provide or the West refuses to provide. And that's what's given them a leg up on the competition um, within this, this, this time period. I think you've brought up a really interesting dent in the contracts that most people really do not know. And that is when you apply for a debt or in that whole process, the, the process includes you having a signer, i.e. a contractor. And most of the times in these other African countries, other than Botswana, which is a, a really great leader in this way, they usually use multinationals, they use big foreign corporations. And these corporations do not usually have the intention of giving back to the people of that country. You know, they're there for their own interest, which is uh, normal as a business. Now, the thing is, as we see the chessboard today, it may seem as if the West is financing Africa. But when you think about it, the fact is that Africa is financing the West. According to Al Jazeera, when the IMF and the World Bank implemented their official development assistance program, it served for the refinancing of the colonial debt in favor of those creditors, i.e. the IMF and the World Bank, instead of being invested in the social and economic investments of the countries in debt. And I think that's what you alluded to at the beginning, Biko. Do you want to finalize your point on that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things, we have a situation right now where a lot of people in the African continent believe that this amount of money that comes in actually serves the interests of the people. And that is categorically, of course, wrong because the only people who benefit from this are few elites who embezzle this amount of money. That should be very clear. The second point, and I think this is a very important piece, is you find that Africa is giving so much to these countries that it's receiving. So what that means is that the amount of money that's being pumped into the African economies is not providing the same amount of benefits that are expected to be received from those type of money. Now, I think continuing to this, do this type of policies is madness. It doesn't function, it doesn't work, and most importantly, it puts a serious burden to the generation that is to come. Remember, people who are making these economic decisions don't have to deal with the consequences of paying all these kind of things. They are making it so like the government could survive for what, like four years, ten years for most of them, like who like spend so much time on, on power. But whoever inherits that situation has a burden to pay that amount of money. So that's the situation we've been like really into since like independence. You know, like Sankara used to raise these type of questions in 1970s. 
And now it turns out by 2020, we're still talking about the same things. So I think, in my opinion, that this type of way and relating with these nations, either by China or any other African, uh, any other Western country, is not healthy for the African continent because you find that Africa is funding these nations instead of these nations funding Africa. And another thing that happens is that they take so much resources from the African continent in terms of mineral and uh, natural resources. So like everything, like gold, diamond, even like if you think about silicon, that like whatever goes into the, the production of these digital uh, equipment, most of it, they are called, and you, you find in places like Congo, Rwanda, and other African countries. And even, you know, the nuclear uh, energy, all these things that goes into the production of electricity that like the U.S., for instance, depends on uh, the nuclear energy to function. You find that these nuclear minerals that are being used were taken from Congo by Belgium and, and, and the United States. So you find a situation where like we are losing in, 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 in a double way. We are funding these nations, that's one. But second, they are taking our resources. And this is a total bankruptcy of the economy and I don't think it works.